I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. You know how this goes. We light a candle for tragedy. What is one of the seven tragedies of this week? Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Please, for yourself, light a candle for, you know, solidarity with love, justice, equality, all of those things, and with some memorial for Ruth Bader Ginsburg today, who we love dearly. So today we are reading The Three Prophecies, the next chapter from where we left off in Jung's Red Book. It feels like a switch from where we were, and Carol and I are going to speak to that sense of kind of what has culminated at this point in Jung's journey. We are nearing the end of the Red Book, but Jung gives reference just at the very beginning here to the fact that this sort of vision was at first recorded in the Black Book. And many of you may not know yet, but the Black Books have been in editing process and conversations with the family for a very long time about whether or not these original journals of Jung's, the raw material of the raw material. So this is where Jung recorded the visions originally and contemplations and some discussion with Tony Wolf and other things. That has been in production for many, many years, and it is now finally coming out into the public. So Carol and I have already ordered our Black Book edition W.W. Norton, the publisher, they've all taken tremendous care to make this its own extraordinary object. Mm -hmm. So just as we're kind of wrapping up with this series, the Black Books are coming into publication again after many, many years of both discussion and editing and production and the whole thing. So I'm excited about that. So we'll start today with the three prophecies. Carol, do you want to say anything before we get going or speak to the horoscope today? Well, let's take a look at the horoscope, because Jung mentions, he notes the date. He says, wondrous things came nearer. I called my soul and asked her to dive down into the floods, whose distant roaring I could hear. This happened on 22 January of the year 1914, as recorded in my black book. And thus she plunged into the darkness like a shot And from the depths, she called out, will you accept what I bring? So again, we see this traffic jam in the 12th house. If we think about the horoscope, this is very reductive. If we think about this inner circle, Carl Jung's natal horoscope. Oh, look, Ruth Bader Ginsburg shared a Saturn in Aquarius with Jung. If we think about the map as our arrival and our in a geography and a moment and a season and we begin to adapt ourselves in a place the horoscope shows not only literal 
personal and public geographies in our development, what we call in the horoscope, the houses. But it shows a portal into the depths that part of the horoscope is very much about here and here and now and gravity and matter and time. But this is the place where narrative time, linear time expands to the infinite. And as we began back in March, these planets had just begun to, we could say, wake up this inner geography of Jung's, a portal to the infinite, to the quantum, to the always becoming and to the liminal. And this is still the case in this, but it's beginning to change. The energy of it is beginning to change. It's becoming more and more and more Aquarian. So this point here, his rising sign, Aquarius rising, air, the, the element of air, and the, the time of year in which light is beginning to return after darkness, is that not only is his point of view and his perspective breathing now in a way that it hasn't been breathing, but there's an increasing emphasis on expansion and possibility that has come after this incredible spiritual soulful contraction. And um, we can take some um, hope from this in, insofar as we are in a time that has, that is analog in many ways to Jung's time to understand what comes after a contraction that leads to expansion and expansion. So I'm very struck by that, by the movement of everything into the sign Aquarius and that it is going into the, into his first house of, essentially his um, vitality and his constitution. So he is being constitutionally changed by his encounter with the depths. And we'll, we'll, you and I will get to talk about that in, in the material of the prophecies. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Carol. I think we are going to have an opportunity to read the entire chapter today, which feels rich because it, it is a short chapter um, and a really full chapter. So So, Carol, what is your sense before we start with the reading about how this is different? I mean, there's a tonal shift. So the you know, where we left off was four chapters in which, you know, there's this very storytelling quality. He's interacting with the portly cook and the librarian and the professor and he's in a madhouse and he's on a ship and he's taking an incubation nap in a kitchen And there's sort of, again, to me, it's kind of a circus hell vibe. There's a lot going on. And then here, this chapter is just a conversation with his soul. And there's a tonal shift. There's a significant change. What's your sense of that? Well, this is odd, but there was a comedian for many, many years named Joan Rivers. And one of her favorite phrases was, oh, grow up. And I heard that voice in my head. I think that what we're seeing here and it's it shows up in the horoscope is that as as a relatively mature man Jung has become an adult and that even the last few chapters that are still very much about you know Parsifal being the hero asking the right question I feel like he has stepped fully into an awareness of 
of the complexity of the world, the longevity of the world, the potency of a world that isn't just his desire, his images and his to command. And that's why the idea of the war, magic and religion now don't mean the same thing to him that they did from a, what I would call a less mature point of view. And, and as we get into it, I have some, I have a couple of things I would love to read from Paul Shepard's book, Nature and Madness, that speaks not only to an individual's maturity, but to a collective mm -hmm. maturity of the individual in relationship to the whole world. So that was the thing that I was very struck by. Right. And so you're speaking to maturity in a way that I think Jung really gave voice to for what the Western world of what is adulthood or maturity look like in the truest sense and not just, I got a house and some kids, right? I mean, this is him really doing a very deep journey into psychological maturity. And I agree. I mean, there's a complete sense as we begin this, that he's being introduced to these horrors and beauties of the world. And his soul is very specific with him about what he needs to do with that. So, so let's start there. We're going to do for the first time, a kind of call and response reading for this first section with Carol and I, she will read for the soul and I will read for Jung. So she, well, you want to start with the question, Carol? Wondrous things came nearer. I called my soul and asked her to dive down into the floods whose distant roaring I could not hear. I could hear. This happened on 22 January of 1914. Thus, she plunged into the darkness like a shot. And from the depths, she called out, will you accept what I bring? I will accept what you give. I do not have the right to judge or to reject. So listen, there is old armor and the rusty gear of our fathers down here, murderous leather trappings hanging from them, worm-eaten lance shafts, twisted spearheads, broken arrows, rotten shields, skulls, the bones of man and horse, old cannons, catapults, crumbling firebrands, smashed assault gear, stone spearheads, stone clubs, sharp bones, chipped arrowhead teeth, Everything the battles of yore have littered the earth with. Will you accept this? I accept it. You know better, my soul. I find painted stones, carved bones with magical signs, talismanic sayings on hanks of leather and small plates of lead, dirty pouches filled with teeth, human hair and fingernails, timbers lashed together, black orbs, Moldy skins, all the superstitions hatched by dark prehistory. Will you accept all this? I accept it all. How should I dismiss anything? But I find worse. Fratricide, cowardly mortal blows, torture, child sacrifice, the annihilation of whole peoples, arson, betrayal, war, rebellion. Will you also accept this? Also this, if it must be, how can I judge? I find epidemics, natural catastrophes, sunken ships, raised cities, frightful, feral savagery, famines, human meanness and fear, whole mountains of fear. So shall it be since you give it. 
I find the treasures of all past cultures, magnificent images of gods, spacious temples, paintings, papyrus rolls, sheets of parchment with the characters of bygone languages, books full of lost wisdom, hymns and chants of ancient priests, stories told down the ages through thousands of generations. That is an entire world whose extent I cannot grasp. How can I accept it? But you wanted to accept everything? You do not know your limits. Can you not limit yourself? I must limit myself. Who could ever grasp such wealth? Be content and cultivate your garden with modesty. I will. I see that it is not worth conquering a larger piece of the immeasurable, but a smaller one instead. A well-tended small garden is better than an ill-tended large garden. Both gardens are equally small when faced with the immeasurable, but unequally cared for. Take shears and prune your trees. It's one of my very favorite sections of the Red Book. Um, both because I feel so kind of resonant with the, I mean, there's a Piscean quality for me about just the everythingness that the soul, his soul is saying to him, you know, I, I have plunged down and I have found everything. And in a moment, Jung speaks to it as the misery of war, the darkness of magic and the gift of religion. So all the images and the pain and the suffering and the magic and the whole thing mixed together it's just so powerful and kind of dark, you know, dark in a resonant way to especially where we are today. But then this section of cultivating your garden, you know, and this has just stood out to me and it makes me think, and I know you want to say more about this as well, the maturing, what it is to mature as a human being, this core quality of Jung's work that is summed up in this paragraph. We're going to see it more in the, in the coming pages as well, the way it resonates. But He's saying, look, we live in an infinite universe. It's endless. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by existence, if you're feeling overwhelmed by grief, if you're feeling overwhelmed by suffering and trauma and war and natural catastrophes, pull your focus back in because it's endless. The beauty and the suffering is endless. Mm -hmm. And a well-tended small garden is better than an ill-tended large garden, you know? So come back to your focus on what you really can cultivate here. Come back to your focus, not in a selfish way to your own existence, but what can you truly work to cultivate? And he really opens that up further in this chapter. Our work individually is our own life and work. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to grab my copy of the Jing because it feels like this is a really, um, yeah. this is something that I thought of in relationship to this. Yeah, Carol has been speaking to hexagram 51. So this, the Wilhelm Baines translation, it's my very favorite hexagram in the Wilhelm Baines translation of the I Ching. Different translations speak to me in different ways. I think all of us do, right, Carol? Yeah. Um, but the Wilhelm Baines hexagram 51 is so extraordinary. It's called shocking the arousing shock and thunder. And I, I, think about, I think about this in relationship to, I find epidemics, natural catastrophes, sunken ships, raised cities, 
my son who lives in the corporate world got a text from one of his employees saying, well, which chapter of Revelations do you think is going to happen tomorrow? And, um, and so I think about not only the astrology of Jung's time and the catastrophes of Jung's time, World War I, but to be in shock, to be in a very, very shocking time. And so in the Wilhelm Baines translation, the arousing shock and thunder and the two trigrams are thunder over thunder. It says, this movement is so violent, it arouses terror. And that he talks about that, his soul says to him, mountains of fear. This movement is so violent, it arouses terror. It is symbolized by thunder, which bursts forth from the earth and by its shock causes fear and trembling. And the judgment says, shock brings success. Shock comes. Oh, oh, laughing words. Ha! The shock terrifies for a hundred miles and he does not let fall the sacrificial spoon and chalice. That's tending your garden. Holding sacred and holding still Mm -hmm. and having respect and honoring Mm -hmm. in the middle of thunder and shock and terror and fear rolling all around you. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to say that the shock that comes from the manifestation of God within the depths of the earth makes people afraid. But this fear is good for joy and merriment can follow upon it. When you've learned within your heart what fear and trembling mean, you will be safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. Let the thunder roll and spread terror a hundred miles around. You remain so composed and reverent in spirit that the sacrificial rite is not interrupted. This is the spirit that must animate leaders and rulers of men, a profound inner seriousness from which all outer terrors glance off harmlessly. And then the image goes on to say, thus in fear and trembling, the superior person sets life in order and examines themselves. Mm-hmm. Will you read that last part again? Because it's, it is so much speaking to the endless horror that we are all waking up to every single day. It is endless. It is relentless. And people and it's have, not going away. Yeah, well, right. You know that astrologically, I think we can all feel like this doesn't end somehow instantaneously, but that no. it's refining us in some profound way. It's that cleansing with dirt we spoke of in former salons, but this sense that somehow we are being refined through the horror, through the trauma. He says, this is the spirit that must animate leaders and rulers of people, men, a profound inner seriousness from which all outer terrors glance off harmlessly. Thus, in fear and trembling, the superior person sets life in order and examines themselves. And I think about, I have two very, very dear friends who said, why, why us? Why did this happen to us? I thought, why not? Why did we, we all think that we'd get a pass somehow? Mm-hmm. That's what makes this chapter different, is that everything that's led up to it, we all go through that. And this has to do with the maturing too. And I really want to hear what, you know, you and I had talked a little bit about your point of view about quarter life and maturing. But that's what makes this particular chapter, there's to me a really profound shift into an acceptance that instead of trying to always humanly manage for outcomes, there's an 
a broader integration and acceptance of what can be mine in the middle of something that I now have come to be in relationship with and can respect and feel its love and respect coming towards me, that there's that now a wholeness is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think. So, you know, Carol and I were speaking just before we started and gathered with all of you a bit about this. And, and she was really speaking to the maturation process you know, that she sees in this. And, and it feels very much like a lot of what I'm working on in my manuscript, trying to really digest Jung's psychology for the first half of adulthood, or what I call quarter life. And the way that it has so many people in their 20s and 30s and late teens um, are having experiences that are very resonant with Jung's Red Book. And that it really speaks to the initiation of, you know, that is part of all mythology, all storytelling, and all suffering, that when there is suffering, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but that it really is about refining of the psychology, refining, 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 and then healing from the suffering. And this sense that what Jung gets to at the very end of that little section we, we just read, that he's understanding his soul is saying, look, you can't possibly hold all this. I'm offering it to you, but your answer really should be, I can't anymore. You know, that there are in fact limits to what you can tolerate. And there is in fact a necessity not to put on blinders, but to focus on what you actually have any capacity to refine and work through. And that's your own existence. I wonder if we want to just check in with Anne because she had sent us an email about her own personal journey in all of this. And it feels like maybe to bring that in here and then we can continue. Anne, do you want to join us here and tell us about your experience reading this chapter? It was just last week and I had a dream. It was in an old white New England church, one of those very New England. There were just three people in it, two of whom were from my husband's church. He's Franciscan and one other person, and coming towards us, we were looking out the window, and coming towards us at 100 miles an hour was a cyclone hurricane with these deep, dark, dark clouds, and it was certain death. I mean, that was that was a given, and interestingly enough, the person I was sitting next to put his arm out on his wife's arm and called her my friend, not my love, but my friend, which I thought was very moving as the last words. So I got up and I said, look, the two of you sit together for for the end. The interesting thing about that was later I looked back at it and I realized that what I had done was accept it. And that gave me a very profound understanding of what Jung was saying there when he says, you know, what you were reading, Satya, yes, I will accept it. And it wasn't an acceptance, it wasn't empty, it wasn't resigned, it wasn't begrudging, and it wasn't joyful. It was what is. And it gave me a really profound experience of what that kind of acceptance is. Lots of kinds of acceptance, Mm -hmm. but it's yes. Mm -hmm. And we're in a moment where it's asking a great deal of us, and it's not joy, but it's not resignation, it's not, the, it's not the opening, the portal. And so at that point, my husband moved in the bed and I woke up. It was just seconds. It was literally right overhead. 
But for the next several days, it stayed right there, right over my head. I could feel it. And finally, in um, I said, I'm going to ask the I Ching, what is the meaning? Because it felt not only personal, but collective. So I went to the I Ching. I've never done that for a dream before. And I got, Carol, you can probably say more about it than I can, but I got radiance or bright omens. I got 30. And I kept saying, that can't be right. You know, this is all this dark clouds, the cyclone just about to hit. And what I'm getting is the bright omens. But I came to understand that there was a word in there, a sentence in there that finally said, and this you're reading you're reading from the Karcher translation, is that I'm reading in this one from the Karcher translation, yes. Um, radiance is the bright presence of things, a newman that surges from the depths, which yes. is what we've been talking about, turning them into omens that reveal the spirits, the yellow leobird. But it's also one, Carol, of the axis of change. And I'm still saying this can't be right. It could be the one before it about the pit. <laughs> And then I came apart in the one sentence, you have fallen and found bottom. And when I read that sentence, it's everything you've been saying so far in this chapter. I said, oh, it knew what it was saying. It, it, this was the right answer. <laughs> that, that, that teaches you to question the I Ching, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Now the time comes for bringing things together. Radiance shines above you. Connect with that brightness, not with, to spread clarity and care to the four corners of the world. Mm -hmm. And brightening things again and again reinforces correcting, and that is how change occurs in the world. And I also saw brightness as awareness, that one of the chief things we're looking at here is the spreading of awareness. That's exactly what you're doing. And I heard Satya's email saying, our hope is that it feels relevant. Not that you're just supposed to carry on. That's not the right acceptance. It's not the right attitude, a resigned or begrudging acceptance. We can't feed that narrative if we want to survive this transformation. Life should feel alive. Those are Satya's words, but it was the same words in 30. The way to change is by connecting with the bright omens. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'll just read the last words of D.H. Lawrence. Are you willing to be sponged out, erased, canceled, made nothing, dipped in oblivion? If not, you will never really change. Yeah. Thank you, Anne, so much. Yeah, thank you. It really, it reminds me too, there's a, a James Baldwin quote, again, that I've been holding in this of, and I don't have it exactly, but this sense, he says, you know, enough suffering, nobody wants suffering, but we also have to acknowledge that suffering is what makes a person, you know, he uses the term a man, but an adult. And so it's through all this that our society is in some way coming to another level of maturity and not in America anyway, just sort of running around like consumerist adolescent psychologies, you know, there's some profound deepening, hopefully that is happening and some tremendous spread of empathy and understanding in this Jung really is opening up this notion of what is to come. And there's a lot more we want to say today, Carol. So you tell me our timing here. 
but there's this idea of what Jung is really setting up in terms of how he understood through this particular vision of what is to come, which is the subtitle of the entire Red Book, what is to come. And, and I'm excited to see this in the Black Books when they come out, because it really is a very potent section in which he's exploring some foreknowledge of, of 800 years into the future. And, and I think he meant that quite literally. He, has a, he had a very clear prophetic understanding of 800 years forward. Yes, yeah. I, I just want to thank you. I, I thank you so much, Anne, for that. I, I want to just add to that the idea of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That a part of maturity is it's going to cost you something. Mm-hmm. And that's a funny economic way to, to put it. But to a consumer culture, the idea that <laughs> you don't have to pay, that it, it's never going to come due. And, um, and so that, and I, I think about, you know, Hillman talks about that idea of epistrophe, that, that it is through yielding something up that makes the whole stronger so it can support you. And that's, you know, in the Wilhelm Baines translation of 30 of fire over fire, he talks about how light clings to dark, that light has to have something to eat it's what makes it burn. And I, and so I think about that idea of not just consumption, but cost that something is going to be lost, that something, something's going to die. There's a wonderful phrase by T.S. Eliot, the cost is everything. I, I remember when I was on the moors in the, in the incredible mythology times on the moors of Devon. And one of the, one of the principles of quote fairy stories unquote is what will it cost and what will you pay? It's comforting for me then to imagine that we, we are, you know, all of this making, this is the alchemy. We're, we're, we're hopefully turning this shit into gold in some form. Yeah. And so even as we suffer every week, collectively and personally, as people lose homes and lives and loved ones and air quality, I mean, the countless things that we lose and, and you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week, the countless things that we are losing and suffering through that perhaps it is all building towards something and not, not even in a linear way. Right. But in this deep digestive process of something profound of maturation and love and empathy coming from this. Let's read. Um, And because I, I, I think the language of the rest of this, it's not long and you and I can go back and forth. And then if we have a little time at the end, I'll, I'll read this from Paul Shepard, because I think his understanding, which of course comes from Jung, Shepard's understanding of, of, of not only individual maturation, but collective maturation and how a, a, the kind of process that it is um, might be a good follow-on if we have time. But let's, let's read the rest. Great. From the flooding darkness of the sun of the earth had brought my soul gave me ancient things that pointed to the future. She gave me three things, the misery of war, the darkness of magic, and the gift of religion. If you are clever, you will understand that these three things belong together. These three mean the unleashing of chaos and its power, just as they also mean the binding of chaos. War is obvious and everybody sees it. Magic is dark and no one sees it. Religion is still to come, but it will become evident. And this is where he footnotes here. How can I fathom what will happen during the next 800 years? 
And, you know, he now Jung sees the long game. Did you think that the horrors of such atrocious warfare would come over us? Did you think that magic existed? Did you think about a new religion? I sat up for long nights and looked ahead at what was to come, and I shuddered. Do you believe me? I am not too concerned. What should I believe? What should I disbelieve? I saw and I shuddered. But my spirit could not grasp the monstrous and could not conceive the extent of what was to come. The force of my longing languished and powerless sank the harvesting hands. I felt the burden of the most terrible work of the times ahead. I saw where and how, but no word can grasp it, no will can conquer it. I could not do otherwise. I let it sink again into the depths. I cannot give it to you. And I can speak only of the way of what is to come. Little good will come to you from outside. What will come to you lies within yourself, but what lies there? I would like to avert my eyes, close my ears, and deny all my senses. I would like to be someone among you who knows nothing and who never saw anything. It is too much and too unexpected, but I saw it, and my memory will not leave me alone. Yet I curtail my longing which would like to stretch out into the future, and I return to my small garden that presently blooms and whose extent I can measure, it shall be well tended. I think that is the perfect place to, to just share this piece of Jungian history that is being alluded to consistently in this chapter. And you read that footnote. So footnote 236, again, it's from the draft, which is to say that Jung wrote it and did not include it in the calligraphic text, this final folio edition that got purchased, uh, got published. He says, how can I fathom what will happen during the next 800 years up to the time when the one begins his rule? I am speaking only of what is to come. And I think for many of us who are, in the Jungian world and and know some of the history, it speaks to this story that Max Zeller, who was a Jungian analyst and came to study at the Jung Institute and was in analysis with Jung for a time, he had escaped a Nazi concentration camp somehow, or rather sort of was released from it. The history of that, I don't quite understand, but this was a person who sort of had barely survived the war and knew suffering, certainly. And in, let's see, in the late 30s or 40s, or late 40s here, 1949, I think, he was um, about to leave analysis with Jung and go back home to the United States. And I think was feeling, it seems was feeling sort of what, how do we really heal the world when what we are doing is just treating individuals? We're only treating individuals. How do, how do we actually heal the world? And he was contemplating that and then had a dream right before he left. And my memory of this story is that he, he sort of somehow insisted he had to see Jung before he left to share this dream. It was just so critically important to him. So he, he was able to present Jung right before he left with this dream. And the dream goes like this. A temple of vast dimensions was in the process of being built. As far as I could see ahead, behind, right, and left, There were incredible numbers of people building on gigantic pillars. 
I too was building on a pillar. The whole building process was in its very first beginnings, but the foundation was already there. The rest of the building was starting to go up and I and many others were working on it. And so Max Zeller then shares this with Jung and Jung responds and here's the dialogue. Jung said, yeah, you know, that is the temple we all build on. We don't know the people because believe me, they build in India and China and in Russia and all over the world. That is the new religion. You know how long it will take until it is built. I said, how should I know? Do you know? He said, I know. I asked how long it will take. He said, about 600 years. Where do you know this from? Max Zeller asked. Jung said, from dreams, from other people's dreams and from my own. This new religion will come together as far as we can see. And then Max Zeller said goodbye. And he understood it. The way he wrote about it was this feeling that, in fact, in analysis and in individual work, when we work on tending our small garden, that that work does, in fact, spread and that the cumulative effect in our families and in our communities is, in Jung's understanding, the creation of this new religion, uh, which, again, feels very potent in this particular section of the coming, what is to come in hundreds of years. And Carol, you might speak to this for a moment about the age of Aquarius and the relationship there. Well, I was thinking about the building of Notre Dame and the burning of Notre Dame and the kind of incredible... I don't want to romanticize the workmen of the Middle Ages, but that's a much different kind of collective creativity to to erect something to Our Lady. But it has that feeling to it that it is a, a collective holy task, that each person does what each person can, and that that's what makes the whole and that make, makes a place for everybody to be in relationship to holding the sacred chalice, that you, you have to hold your part and create the altar in which the, the larger collective is able to hold it together. Mm-hmm. And certainly, if you think about the last 800 years, 1120, and you think about the next 800 years, 2820, the shift from from an astrological point of view, from the element of earth to the element of air, is that it isn't that we won't continue to live in the material world and be in bodies and be subject to time and matter, but that our long-term evolution has to do with connection, because air is the medium of connection, of relationship, of ideas, of speech, of imagination and of movement. And so we are at we are coming to the end of something that built something and some of it will go into the future with us and some of it won't. Mm-hmm. But where we are all going at the beginning of 2000 years, the next 800 years is a much different elementally different qualitatively different way of of being together in the world. And that idea of Zeller's dream, which is that we all are building the temple, that's the, you know, it's the whole idea of when you do dream work, that it's your dream, but it's everybody's dream. Right. And that understanding that, that taking the time and building the relationships that make it possible for everyone to hold the dream together, that that's the possibility. Mm-hmm. 
Beautiful. It, 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 everything you're speaking to, it kind of flashed me back to, to Anne's dream of the husband reaching his arm to his wife and saying, my friend, for me, that kind of androgynous quality, the twinning of the masculine, the feminine and the, the union, the kind of conjunctio energy of that, that I'm praying for. That's, that's sort of dawning with the age of Aquarius too. So, so we'll start again. So this is page 376 at the very bottom for those who are following. The future should be left to those of the future. I return to the small and the real, for this is the great way, the way of what is to come. I return to my simple reality, to my undeniable and most minuscule being. And I take a knife and hold court over everything that has grown without measure and goal. Forests have grown around me, winding plants have climbed up me, and I am completely covered by endless proliferation. The depths are inexhaustible. They give everything. Everything is as good as nothing. Keep a little and you have something to recognize and know your ambition and your greed, to gather your craving, to cultivate it, grasp it, make it serviceable. Influence it, master it, order it, and give it interpretations and meanings is extravagant. It is lunacy like everything that transcends its boundaries. How can you hold that which you are not? Would you really like to force everything which you are not under the yoke of your wretched knowledge and understanding? Remember that you can know yourself, and with that, you know enough. But you cannot know others and everything else. Beware of knowing what lies beyond yourself, or else your presumed knowledge will suffocate the life of those who know themselves. A knower may know himself. That is his limit. With a painful slice, I cut off what I pretended to know about what lies beyond me. I excise myself from the cunning interpretive loops that I gave to what lies beyond me, and my knife cuts even deeper and separates me from the meanings that I conferred upon myself. I cut down to the marrow until everything meaningful falls from me, until I am no longer as I might seem to myself, until I know only that I am without knowing what I am. I want to be poor and bare, and I want to stand naked before the inexorable. I want to be my body and its poverty. I want to be from the earth and live its law. I want to be my human animal and accept all its frights and desires. I want to go through the wailing and the blessedness of the one who stood alone with a poor unarmed body on the sunlit earth, a prey of his drives and of the lurking wild animals who were ter- was terrified by ghosts and dreaming of distant gods who belonged to what was near and was enemy to the far off who struck fire from stones and whose herds were stolen by unknowable powers that also destroyed the crops of his fields and who neither knew nor recognized, but who lived by what lay at hand and received by grace what lay far off. He was a child and unsure, yet full of certainty, weak and yet blessed with enormous strength. When his God did not help, he took another. And when this one did not help either, he castigated him. And behold, the gods helped one more time. 
Thus I discard everything that was laden with meaning, everything divine and devilish with which chaos burdened me. Truly, it is not up to me to prove the gods and the devils and the chaotic monsters, to feed them carefully, to warily drag them with me, to count and name them, and to protect them with belief against disbelief and doubt. A free man only know, knows only free gods and devils that are self-contained and take effect on account of their own force. If they fail to have an effect, that is their own business, and I can remove this burden from myself. But if they are effective, they need neither my protection nor my care nor my belief. Thus you may quietly, you may wait quietly to see whether they work. But if they do, be clever, for the tiger is stronger than you. You should be able to cast everything from you, otherwise you are a slave, even if you are the slave of a god. Life is free and chooses its way. It is limited enough, so do not pile up more limitation. Hence I cut away everything confining. I stood here and there lay the riddlesome multifariousness of the world. And a horror crept over me. Am I not the tightly bound? Is the world there not the unlimited? And I became aware of my weakness. What would poverty, nakedness, and unpreparedness be without consciousness of weakness and without horror at powerlessness. Thus I stood and was terrified. And then my soul whispered to me. And we have a beautiful little cliffhanger there. What did his soul whisper? We'll find out next week in the next installment of the Red Book. <laughs> Whew, so evocative, yeah. this section. Yeah. You want to share a little more of your thoughts on just maturation and how this spoke to you in general, just this clarification for Jung of, of the need to focus. Well, this chapter and, um, and thinking about epidemics, wildfires, deaths of leaders, collapse of systems, sent me back to Paul Shepard, his book, Nature and Madness. He's, he's certainly an inheritor of Jung's, but he's also more Freudian in, in his psychology. But he, he talks about what he calls the, the domesticators, the desert fathers, the Puritans, and the mechanics. Winkled the human tribe away from a relationship with the whole world and into only the human world. And the problems for our collective integration and relationship with the whole world as a result of it. Hillman actually makes a really interesting reference to this in, um, in his book, The Soul's Code, where he says, you know, we used to raise our children in relationship to the wind, our auntie, and the tiger, our cousin, and the rivers, our parents. But our world narrowed to the, the human structure, and that in that narrowness, we lost our connection, and we lost our ability to give our children a way to grow up in, into interrelatedness. So Shepard in his book, Nature and Madness, says, talks about 
The mature adult is a late stage in this lifelong series of overlapping and interlocking events, not linear, but spiral, resonating between disjunction and unity, but moving so that each new cycle enlarges the previous one. This complicated passage through separation and symbiosis is human and primate. It evolved. It's based on an extended life. Then he goes on to talk about how we live longer. So that made other things possible, but it also made our adolescence and our immaturity longer and our dependence on a certain kind of tribal culture longer. And he says, by symbiosis, we mean a connecting dependency, a kind of school for relatedness, a matrix or setting in which the structure of the world is forecast by previous experience, beginning with the body. And then he goes on to talk about that in this spiral, an openness in which a child is directed to an intrinsic schedule, a hunger to fill archetypal forms with specific meaning, a biologic commitment to that learning program, building identity and meaning in the oscillation between autonomy and unity, separateness and relatedness. And he says, the goal is not to perpetuate the subjective merger state, the infant, the neonate, the I'm held, I'm comforted, teenage appetite, take care of me, but to come to a self in which that self is making a contribution has a respect for and a sense of the whole and understands that he or she has a contribution to make from it. And then he goes on to say, to be the caretakers of such a highly specialized evolution is itself a complex task requiring successive appropriate responses and anticipation Delivery into maturity depends on unique characteristics in the human adult that has been called the capacity for culture. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just the capacity for human culture. It's the capacity for living in the whole world. And that is what I think an adult Jung, an adult human being has now come to this kind of awareness of, of the world isn't only what I want it to be. The world is is its own thing. And that's where I want to live. Right. It's funny. I mean, when you use the word adult, you know, I sort of have this um, sometimes a bristling response because I think that word can be used in such a shaming way for younger people so often. um, And that people of a certain age can think that they're adults when in fact they haven't done any of their psychological work, you know? So just to really refine this idea, I mean, I hear you speaking deeply to the psychological notion of adulthood, which is so profound in the depth psychological world and, and really is saying the way we most contribute to the world is by refining consciousness. And, and again, not in a sit on a mountaintop for 40 years, form of refining consciousness, but by being part of existence, working with the animal body, working with this question of, are you a mosquito or are you an elephant, as Mm -hmm. Jung spoke to in previous chapters, but to know your own existence and to live your own existence and to let that be part of the pillar of the coming temple, you know, that that really becomes the emphasis. And so I love your, what you spoke to here about that oscillation between the inner and the outer. We've spoken to that so much in previous 
salons, this, and of course, Jung coined those terms, introversion and extroversion, and, you know, coined so many of the terms that we now use in this understanding of oscillating between the inner and the outer, that it's not just serve community by classic kind of acts of maybe more Christian service or volunteering or things like that, but it's also this other quality of serving the community by engaging with your own shadow, your own projections, and also your own lifeblood that wants to come into form in the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I just had an extraordinary, extraordinary experience of, of, of a dream of mine being worked with a, an amazing group of people. Mm-hmm. And what, what came up in that dream was a very much a reflection of what you're talking about, the yin-yang pair. Right. You know, energy and form, energy and form, energy and right. form, and very much, you know, light and dark, light and dark, just that, that constant, you know, vibrant movement between those two things. And here we are again with the tension of the opposites as we start to move towards Q&A. And you want to you wanna weigh in here before we move to question and answer? I was very, very struck by the second to last paragraph in which she says things like, uh, I wanted to go back, um, those who struck fire from stone. Mm-hmm. He's really stripping off civilization from him. I mean, he's just going naked, but he's, he's going back to, in his vision, he's going back to literally being primordial, being aboriginal and it reminded me of a wonderful book many of you may know voices of the first day by robert lawler which is a very long comprehensive study of australian aboriginals from every aspect and in that he talks about preserving the seed which is what we've been talking about i think throughout this you can call it preserving the bright omen, preserving the, the small, the tended garden. But Lala calls the seed the plan. And he's, he, he says, we are now as the fruit to the seed, our civilization. But that, of course, all things begin with the seed and end with the seed. I mean, when you've eaten the fruit, the seed then drops back to the ground and the earth. And it's very, very important for us as the fruit not to lose the seed. He in particular would like Australia to save much more land because he says the gift that they are making to us, and that's what I hear Jung doing in this chapter, is saying, I mustn't lose the seed. Mm-hmm. I mustn't lose that place. And the more I thought about it, I thought, so what is the great gift, one of the great gifts that they give us? And that is that one's true nature, going back to one's true nature, which you've been talking about all along, is going back to nature as well. It's an embeddedness. We don't even have the language for it. What would it look like if my true nature were actually one if i experienced it as one with the grasses the it's almost the only example i can think of it is is when you see a tiger in a zoo he's being a tiger or she is going back and forth but it's not like what happens when you let the tiger back out into its natural environment and i think the question is to what extent civilization has become that Zoo, actually, absolutely. That our nature has, and that, that that's their great gift to us, and that's what I hear in that paragraph. That's all. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's a very rich little section again, and um, and I appreciate you drawing our attention to it because it felt like we didn't have quite quite have time to open all of that up. But this question of if we're not going to go all the way back, and we're also not pleased with where society has ended up now, then where are we really going? And Jung says we'll leave the future to the people of the future, but what do we do in this moment? And it makes me think what you're speaking to as well that it is Rosh Hashanah, it is the Jewish New Year, and and also the kind of birthday of existence with Rosh Hashanah. And so this quality of rebirth and the new cycle, and it felt poignant that we're starting this chapter here because it does feel like the dawning of something in the Red Book and in Jung's journey. I just realized we have such a profound image of this section that we haven't spoken to the image. Do you want to do that? And maybe before we go to Q&A, we're going a little long, but Carol, you want to describe it? Well, this is what we have an image of is a a burning mandala in the sky being translated down through the the figure of a seated person into a cultural scene beneath. And what it's a picture of is Basel as a seaport, which means Europe has flooded, that Europe as it used to be doesn't exist anymore, and that that there in the foreground, there are men who are, are at target practice. There are soldiers who are standing guard. There are cannons. There are fenced walls and there are uh, contained canals and there's factories with smoke and steamships with smoke and um, walled um, towers of governance. And it's such an interesting Uh, and stark, literally top to bottom contrast between, you know, if we think about this mandala, this this beautiful cross that is ablaze in the heavens as really as and seed, you know, to think about the seed and and really the the creativity and the power of the present moment. I think about that. I I really appreciated what you said, Anne, about the seed in a, a conversation with a friend yesterday, when she was talking about how hard these times are, I said, how we are now is how it will be. That's why we have to pay attention to how we are now, like right now. And that's what I think of this mandala is the potent creative seed energy of right now that's radiating down into the world as it existed then is a flooded continent that is trying to maintain its productivity, its armaments, it's wars, it's commerce. And so it's the oddest combination of hope and despair. Which is quite this chapter, isn't it? This quality of all of the horrors and the coming new religion. All right. Thanks for sharing that image and and discussing it. Um, We'll open up to all of you. So beautiful to see all of your faces and and, uh, those whose faces we can't see have your presence here. Hi, Nan. Hi, Satya. So here's a question for Carol and you, but the idea of um, when things go to ash, I would just like to hear your thoughts on that part of the process and where we are. Well, um, the first thing that I think about is the generating cycle of classical Chinese medical philosophy, that there's fire and, and wood and earth and water so it's that whole idea that you, 
And, and it's really the idea of what Anne read in reading number 30 of, of, of the fire over the fire, that you don't get life without death. You, you don't get a future without a, a loss. You know, it's why ashes to ashes and dust to dust is, is so trite. And, um, and certainly if you think about the, the astrological, the Western astrological elemental cycle is not as uh, sophisticated in its way in terms of nature of how the classical Chinese thought about it. So um, metal that is winter that turns to water is really a picture of ash feeding spring and then wood and then fire. I, I'm saying this badly, the, those of you out there who are, are more knowledgeable about this than I am, but that uh, clearly that ash is a product of something and the generator of something else. So that's my kind of uh, wordy and long-winded answer, Nan. It's beautiful. Yes, thank you very much. I think just briefly, too, of the Mortifactio uh, stage in alchemy, you wow. know, of, of things burning and turning to ash. And um, just again, that this is all part of the alchemical cycle of, of transformation and becoming. You know what else that makes me think of just briefly? Oregon is chock-a-block with really wonderful herbalists. And there is a young herbalist who was making pretty good medicine, herbal medicine, until he, he said, you know, it, it bothered me. It really bothered me that I would, I would grow these plants and I would harvest these plants and I would make tinctures and that they would be effective, but that I would just compost the plants after I was done. And he said, they're just, just didn't seem right. And then he discovered some old alchemical herbals in which you burn the plants to ash and you put the ash in the medicine. And I don't, I'm not remembering the technical term for it, but now it was not only the spirit of the plant, but it was the soul of the plant that was going into the medicine and that he himself noticed a change in his own well-being when he had incorporated not only the stuff of the plant and the spirit of the plant, but the soul because it had been given up. And, um, and so that's the other thing, Nan, it's a great question. It's the other thing that it puts me in mind of. She's definitely lighting us up because, I mean, of course, it's speaking to the Oregon fires and all this and, um, mm. and, and California fires. But for us, it was so profoundly, you know, such a huge part of our lives here. And this quality of, you know, there was this post going around of please remember all of the animals and trees that have been burned as the ash is falling on your homes. And that was circulating social media of this sense of to pick up some ash and remember the honoring and of makes me think again of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Um, but just this quality of, of death and, and um, cremation and, and the, the honoring of what is in that ash and what is to come with the rebirth. I only wanted to say there are some seeds that will only grow when there has been a fire. Yeah. Right. Quite a number of them we're learning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm remembering Oregon after Mount St. Helens. Yeah. You know, when Mount St. Helens blew, I lived in Northeast Portland at the time and my backyard was blanketed yeah. in ash, blanketed. And, and it wasn't safe to drive unless you, you packed spare air filters with you really for weeks afterwards. But what grew in my garden 
in the following year was absolutely astonishing. Mm-hmm. You know, I had never seen my, the, the trees and the plants and the grass, every, everything just, just was completely by it. Yeah. Well, that seems like a proper place for us to end here for today. Um, You know, the nourishing from the death and the suffering, it is all so much a part of this chapter. The three prophecies, not just the death and destruction, but the coming birth of a new religion. And magic. And magic, which is where we start next week, the gift of magic. So we look forward to that. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Satya. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.